0: Well, good morning, everybody. How you guys doing today? Awesome. Some of you are awesome. Some of you were like, Ugh, "It's morning. It's morning." I'm still recovering from the heat wave last week. <laughs> Glad to be here with you guys. And let me tell you, I um I had the privilege of being a part of the youth had a camp this last week. So Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, they were at um, the same church that the Shia's conference is going to be at, and it was a lot of fun. We had um, an amazing speaker, great worship. Uh, we had um, some games where I'm just, I don't like to brag. Who am I kidding? I do. I, um, I destroyed the youth in all these games. It was, it was tons of fun. Um, one of the youth, uh, Tyler, was on my team. We killed it, Tyler. We did. Who Whoever thought that one of my skills would be dominating Ultimate Frisbee with a banana? turns out I can throw that thing far and I can run deep and catch that thing. Even when it explodes upon impact, it was a lot of fun. So, um... Just, uh, I'm thankful that we got to do that with our youth. Again, uh, a lot of lives were changed this last week. Um, God spoke to a lot of youth, and it it was fun to be a part of seeing so many youth engaged, having fun, but also at the same time, seeing God work in their hearts. So I'm thankful that we uh, as a church get to send youth to to fund things like that. And that same thing happens, you know, at the the She Is conference with with the women in the man camp. Mm -hmm. That's what I like to do. Every time I hear man camp, it's like to grunt, right? But I know it's going to happen for the minute at at the man camp too. So sign up for those things. It's going to be a whole lot of fun. Um, We're continuing with James, James chapter 4. And as we get going today, let me just start by saying when I was putting this talk together, uh, this talk wrecked me in a lot of ways. Um, th- this chapter, every chapter in James seems to get deeper and deeper, and he addresses bigger issues and stronger issues, and he starts to, to swing harder, I feel like, the way he says things. Um, and I know from the get-go, he, he's very blunt, but by chapter 4 now, if you thought he was being soft in any way earlier, that's gone at this point. He really is just going for it and telling people some hard, good, serious truths. And, um, and, and he goes for it. And last week, I know we talked a lot about the tongue. And he doesn't st- talk so much about the tongue this week, but more so of the effects of the tongue and how we start using that in our everyday lives. Now, you ever have a friend who likes to fire out blatant truth? Like blatant truth. Truth, truth that that comes out, and it comes out maybe even not in a nice way, but you you hear it and it's said to you, and then you're like... No, 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 that's not true. And you walk away going, oh man, they caught me. Or they, 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 they said something that really, really resonated with you and you don't want to admit it, right? James does a lot of that in here and he talks about that some. It's almost like when someone tells you something, you know it's true, you don't want to believe it and it gets you frustrated with them. But then you walk away and you start realizing that's true. That really is true. James hits that. And as you unpack what that person maybe said to you, you realize there's a lot of truth there. Even if you didn't like hearing it, there's a lot of truth in some of the words that people can say. Now, James is going to, again, get straight to the point on things, and he really made me examine myself, and I, and I hope that my, my prayer this morning for all of us is that as we dive into this, that there may be some things that are said, there may be some passages we read or some points that are brought out where you may you may get upset a little bit, and, and this is not done for the sake of, I'm not trying to call anybody out, um, I'd rather do that you know, on Facebook where the world can see it, but I'm just kidding, I would do that, but... If something is said that, that you feel called out on or, or you feel, like, maybe even guilty, I don't want you to leave here thinking, man, I can't believe he said that. I, I hope that there's a little conviction maybe that, that turns you to look at God a little bit and say, all right, God, why did that resonate so much with me? What, what about that made me upset? Why, why is this standing out? Because I think that's, that's really good godly conviction right there. Things that make us turn to Scripture, things that are said that make us turn back to God to unpack something, that's good stuff. So I hope today as we unpack this, that's really the, the chord that gets struck, something that really helps you dive back into what God is saying. So let's pray as we dive into James chapter 4. Uh, God, you are so good, and I thank you that, that today as we dive into your word, we get to unpack some, some good truth, and um, maybe even some hard truth as to, to what you're saying to us today. So God, I ask that as we, as we unpack this and read this, you convict us in good ways, you draw us closer to you, and God, that we leave here having some action steps, knowing what we can change, or what we can do to draw closer to you, because we know that, God, you want us as close as we can possibly be. So God, we thank you, we love you, and everybody said, amen. Now, there's a story about a man who received a promotion to a position of vice president in the company that he worked for. And so he started telling everybody he could that he was now the vice president. And so he went home and he told his wife, he goes, I'm now the vice president. This is great. And he was bragging so much about it that his wife got so embarrassed by his behavior. She said, Listen, this is not that big a deal. He says, Well, what do you mean? She says, These days, everybody can be a vice president. Every company has a vice president. There's even a vice president of peas at the supermarket. So, somewhat deflated, he called his local supermarket. He said, I'd like to speak to the vice president of peas. To which the reply was, fresh or frozen? <laughs> right? You see, the very thing this guy bragged about for weeks, drove people crazy, was not actually a big deal in the grand scheme of things. For him, his own wife even wanted him to just stop, just stop with the bragging. Now, if, if you know me, you, you know, confidence is not something I lack in either, um, I, I, I like to have fun um, when it comes to sports banter or even just competitions. I like to hype myself up. Um, as a matter of fact, my personal email address has the phrase I am the king in it. Right? It's just confidence is not something I've lacked in. My kids call me Superman and um, I've always loved Superman but the day my daughter walked in when I was watching a Justice League cartoon, Superman punched the bad guy and Aurora, Aurora looks and goes, that's my daddy. I was like, yes, yes that is. I am your daddy. So, I have a lot of confidence in in myself and my life, but I have to make a very conscious effort to not let that turn into pride, to not get prideful with it. Pride for what I am, pride for what I do, or pride for the gifts that God has manifested in, in me. And James addresses that amongst many other issues today. And we're gonna unpack together because what he wrote will not only better our relationship with each other, but ultimately our relationship with Jesus. And he addresses a lot of things in these 12 verses. So James chapter four, verses one through 12. If you have your Bibles, go there. If not, I believe they'll be up on the screens for us. But here we go. James chapter four, starting in verse one. What causes fights and quarrels amongst you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you, what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says live without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely, but he gives us more grace? That is why scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge. And the one who is able to save and destroy, but you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Now take a breath. That was, that was a lot. Lots of big words. Lots of words like murder, slander, adulterous, heathen, humble yourself. I mean, there, there was just, that, that James is just throwing haymakers out there in this part. And its first section, it has so much to unpack. Otherwise, you can read this and, and just walk away feeling totally deflated. I, I know I've, I've done that before. Read, read a passage or someone said something and left just like, man, that just took all the wind out of my sails. But then if you really start to unpack the meaning behind it, the heart behind it, why was this said? Why was this brought to you in the first place? Then you can start to say, oh, this wasn't meant to deflate. This really was meant to encourage this really was meant to build up. This really was meant to put something on track so you can grow and get better. And that's James here. He's not hes not saying this to beat people down. He's not saying this. I mean, if he wrote this letter and the intent was just to destroy people, that, that's thats the wrong heart behind it. But James talks so much about the heart, and we'll see that get pulled through here as well. But he starts off by talking about pride. And we've talked about pride, but he... he Uh, partners pride with the term hedonism. And if you don't know what hedonism is, we're going to unpack that in a second. But he works these two things together. Now, we've talked about pride before, and pride is a feeling or deep pleasure or satisfaction derived from one's own achievements. The achievements of those whom one is closely associated or from qualities or possessions that are widely admired. That's a long definition, and if you look at it, that doesn't sound so bad, right? Feeling of deep pleasure, satisfaction from your own achievements. You know, we do things and we feel good. You know, you ever built something? I have not. I can honestly, I haven't built anything, unless it's Legos. But you build something and, and you look back at it and you're like, I did that. That's good. Or if you're a master master grill barbecue person, you put that meat on the table. You're like, Yeah, I cooked that. You, t- you take pride in your accomplishments, right? That doesn't sound so bad. But at the same time, this is something that can get us in trouble, because pride has that ability to 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 make us feel so good that we start looking down on other people that aren't quite at our level. I don't know if um, anyone here follows the the NFL Hall of Fame, but um, primetime, Deion Sanders just gave a thing about the Hall of Fame. And when all these Hall of Fame candidates are standing up there, they're all getting their jackets, he said a phrase. It was just like, ah, he goes, I'm above these people. My jacket should be a different color. Yeah, right? And it's like, ooh. And he, he openly was saying he shouldn't even be standing on the same level as these other Hall of Famers. It's a pride issue, right? Him thinking, he's, the, the, the phrase that he's so much better that these people don't even deserve to be on the stage with him. That, that's what pride can do for us. Even though we may not vocalize it, we can start getting the mentality of I'm so much better than these people and you start looking down on people. That's, that's what pride causes us to do. I know that um, sometimes if we win something, we have to keep it in check. Now, if I win something, and someone gives me a compliment like, like, oh, Dustin, you're so good in that. I can immediately look at my wife, and she'll roll her eyes because she'll think, just what Dustin needs, an ego booster. Please don't tell him how good he is. And I'll be like, oh, no, please, please stop, please stop. You know, just one of those moments, right? <clears throat> now... I know that she says this in fun. We speak and live like we talked last week. We speak and live in sarcasm with one another. But there is an element of truth there. I I know that I have to keep myself in check so I don't lose the humility that I know I'm supposed to live with. The the humility that's supposed to be the driving factor in my life. Pride can take hold so easily. And sometimes we can even be so arrogant and independent in our relationship with God that we let pride start interfering in that relationship. Not just with people, but in our walk with Jesus himself. I think if there's a single obstacle in our lives, one single thing that a lot of sin stems from, a lot of our issues stem from, it stems from pride. Not the good self-esteem that I think a lot of people need. I think it's, self-esteem is great. I think there, there's sometimes we can do a, a lot of issues as to not having enough self-esteem. We, we need that to, to, be motivi- to motivate ourselves to move forward, but having that balance of self-esteem and I can do it myself, and, or having that balance of I have self-esteem versus I can do it myself pride That's where the issue comes in, and pride can fall easily, something we can fall so easily into. But as James says, it all starts with the heart. Now, when James opens this up in verses one and two, uh, I expect James, being a position of leadership at churches in Jerusalem, he he had to see all too much bickering and people fighting with each other and criticizing, and this too finds its root in pride. And James addresses it in this chapter, and some of the words that he uses here in just the first couple verses, he uses the word fights. In verse 1, he says fights. Now, in Greek, this is polemos, and it is literally armed conflict, war, battle, fight, right? So, so James talks about fighting. He talks about quarrels. This is, you know, fighting, quarreling, disputing with each other. He uses the word battle. Battle, we're all familiar with this, right? It's like military service, serving in the army, and then figuratively of the struggles of passions within the human soul, James says in uh, verse 1. He uses the word kill. Translated, this is directly from the word Murder. Unrestrained, unrestrained anger with murder. Matthew 5 talks about anger being the root cause of murder. And then he uses the word covet. And covet, you know, being filled with jealousy or envy towards someone. Something that gets you so angry at someone because they have something you don't have. And James throws all this out there in just the first two verses of this book, knowing they stem from a pride issue. He's using terms that he knows all these people are going to understand. We don't, I don't think we look at any of these words and go, I wonder what that word means. So James uses these knowing his audience is going to know what these things are. They can relate to his words. They can identify with these words because they've been a part of all of these things before. And now remember, he wrote this at a time of great persecution. They were getting killed. They were in the middle of battles. They were having quarrels amongst themselves. They were fighting. They were jealous of what what some of the Romans had and the things they didn't have. This is all language James was like, I'm going to throw this out there because you all understand. And he wanted them to be unified. He didn't want them to have a pursuit of pride, but he knew they were dealing with it. Pride and self-gratification. And they could not afford that at this time in their history of a church. Now, I know two people who uh, go to another church, people that that I care about deeply, and they were both on the worship team. And, and there was a, a portion where we had one person who was leading and another person who was, who was on the team, but the person who was on the team openly said, I know I'm better than that person. I should be the leader. And we had to unpack this, this issue with them. And they, they, she couldn't think of a good word to say about this other person because they wanted to be the leader. And so as we unpacked this, it, it turned down into a, a pride issue. I know where my talents are. I know how good I am. I deserve to do this. This person deserves to be under me. That's what pride can do us. We start talking about what we deserve. And so many fights that become about outward issues under the surface, you start scratching away at it, it really becomes a heart issue. You really start having to look deep and to see how this is manifesting into your heart. And if you're not aware of it, it can start to wreak havoc with, in your life, in your marriage, with your kids, with your friends and family, even with your church. I mean, churches have to work through difficult problems. Churches, we're just like a family. We, we're not perfect. We mess up. Sometimes I, I deal with pride issues with me and, and, and church stuff. We, I'm not perfect, but it's all things we have to keep at the forefront. We have to make sure it's not manifesting deep and then coming out into what we could say is, oh, that's just a little thing, but it's a big thing if you dig at it. The longer we're here on earth, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna work with this. We'll have strife and conflict. Um, we're going to meet people with different points of view, but we've got to let love flow despite our differences and not let pride be what, what fuels our conversations. And if we examine ourselves, we can start seeing what our real motivations are. And that's where James brings in this topic of hedonism. Now, hedonism comes in, and James addresses it of having hedonism as your way of life. Now, in the first three of... Uh, verses of chapter four, he uses the Greek word hedoni, which is where we get hedonism from in English. Now, one, he says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires? And that's the hedoni word right there, desires that battle within you. And then in verse three, he says this, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives. I'm sure none of us have ever done that before, right? that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. There it is, that word, that pleasures word. That is the hedoni again. So so you see the theme of how this context is being used when it's all self-centered and self-motivated. In these verses, it's variously translated as desires, lusts, passions, pleasures, and it, it means the pleasure and enjoyment Right, So it's usually in the bad sense, because if you look at those things, sometimes you think, well, lusts, yeah, that's bad, but, but pleasures and passions, I'm passionate about things. I, I, I take pleasure in some things, that doesn't sound bad, but in the term of hedonism, what it's doing is it's saying this is the driving motivation behind these actions. This is what you're living for. We use it, in today's modern language, we can use it as kind of a synonym for decadence, But then what happens is we get people that live by this golden rule. And maybe you've heard this said before, you know someone that would fall into this, or maybe maybe you can identify yourself falling into this, but this phrase that where people will live by it says, I will choose what seems to offer me the greatest happiness. I will choose what seems to offer me the greatest happiness. And, And don't get me wrong, that sounds innocent. Sounds good, right? Everyone wants to be happy. If you have two choices in front of you, choice A brings pain and misery, choice B brings happiness, what do you choose? It's not a trick question, right? You choose B. That's the one that's going to make you happy. You don't go down the road that makes you, makes you feel pain. We don't naturally want to choose pain. We naturally want to choose something that's going to feel good. But that's what can lead down a wrong path. We seek personal happiness as our main goal in life. That is living in hedonism by definition. So think of it this way, that we are, living, that we are not living to love others and seek their good when it conflicts with our own. And that we have not surrendered our lives to fulfill God's will for us. So when James is talking about hedonism, this is what he's saying: you're not living your life to love others and seek their good when it conflicts with your own, and that we have not surrendered our lives to fulfill God's will for us. James is saying that if, if our existence, if our existence, at its very core, is to just pursue self-satisfying happiness, then we're missing the point. Really, really missing the point. There's so much more, but it's a common philosophy that that we may take for granted. There are people that choose to satisfy their own personal happiness, than doing God's will. And I know that there's so many times in my life where I've done that. I I know I've picked things. I said, "Hey, I want to do this, and this is for me. Probably not the best, but I'm going to do it." I've gone through those things. I've made those decisions. I think we all can identify moments where we've done it. Now, now hear me. What I'm not saying, I'm not saying if you ever choose to do something happy, oh my gosh, you're messing up. I'm not saying that. If you look through my Facebook or my Instagram, you a very common theme you will see is Disney pictures. You'll see me and my family at Disneyland. When we lived in California, that was a frequent trip we made all the time. You'll see me and Mickey and Goofy and, and sometimes the kids will be in the pictures with me, but it's really all about me and those, right? Now, it's one of our favorite places to go in the world as a family. We love Disneyland. We have so much fun there. And I'm not saying going and doing fun things is bad. But what, what I think James is saying here is, is when that is the driving force behind every decision you make, behind everything you do, you are living your life for the purpose of making yourself nothing but happy. That's where he says now that's crossing into the line of hedonism. We're veered away from what God intended for us to do for each other. How we're supposed to love others along the way. And you guys know that sometimes loving others is not going to make you happy. Sometimes loving others is hard. Sometimes you're going to do something and it's sacri- you're going to have to sacrifice something for somebody else. And in that moment, that particular moment, you think, I could do this and that's going to be great. Or I could sacrifice this and show someone love and that one's going to hurt a little bit. But I guarantee you, that one in the long run is going to feel a whole lot better than the fleeting happiness of the first choice. James is talking about making sure other people are being loved, and we're loving God, we're loving others, and we're not just living for ourselves. Sometimes we can get caught up in that that pursuit of more stuff, the pursuit of more things and self-gratification, and when we do that, we've missed something great. I know I can look back and say, I've made a decision here, and I missed something great because I wanted to do something just for me, and then I get to have a massive heart check really self examine myself and see what did i do why did i do that why was i why did i why did i choose selfishness in this moment selfishness and pride it can it can blind us to the real blessings from god the real gifts that he wants to give us and the one he wants to pour into our lives because we start looking at ourselves instead of looking outward what god really wants us to do is focus on the outward focus on people see what they're doing see what they need how can we be a blessing to others and James continues, he says, and sometimes, you know, we start saying we want things, and then, then James says, and sometimes you don't, you don't have these things because you're not asking for it. He says, you're not asking God. Why is that? I think sometimes it's because we're afraid to bring God into our lives too much. We say, you know, I, I've got things, got things pretty pretty handled here. I don't need to ask God. Or maybe things are going really, really good. You think, hey, things are so good right now, I don't need to ask God for help. I don't need it. I've, I've got it covered. Or maybe, just maybe. We're not asking God into our lives at certain things because we may be a little bit afraid of what he may say. Say, all right, God, give me patience. No, never mind. I don't want patience, God. No, no. Heads up, chapter five next week. It's all about patience. Sometimes we just may be afraid of what God may say. I don't want to ask God because I know what he's going to say. And if I hear him say it, then I'm going to do it. So I'm not going to ask in the first place. It's not going to go there kind of like the kid, you know, putting their fingers in their ears, not listening, not listening, nope, nope, not going to ask him, right? We prefer to go on at our own rather than be obligated to do what we know God is telling us to do. James says it this way in verses two and three, you do not have because you do not ask. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. One of the reasons we may not get all we ask for, and I know I mean praying to win the lottery all the time, right? It hasn't happened yet. I don't play it. But you know, it's it's one of those things. We ask with the wrong motives. And James is saying that. What are you what's the motive behind your asking? Sometimes you ask, you don't have because you're not asking, and sometimes you're asking you're not getting it because the motive behind it is way off base. It's a self-centered motive. This is a Greek word called depano. It means spend and spend freely on yourself. It's like, it's like kids asking their parents for money saying, Mom, Dad, I'm out of money. I need money for this. And so you're like, all right, here, I can give you some. And then they go and they spend it on whatever they want. Money, or do they games and candy and friends and partying. And then they come back, mom, dad, I'm out of money. I really, really need money. It's essential that I get this. And How, how long is that cycle going to keep repeating, right, before you realize as a parent you catch on? Wait a second, you're just throwing all this money away. But that, that's, that's what this is like. If your kid asks you something and you know the motive behind it, you're more likely to say, well, wait a second. I'm not going to give that to you right now because I know what you're going to do with it. I think God does that a lot of times as well. When we ask for things, God looks at the heart. He looks at what's going on, and sometimes God will say no because he'll say, hey, you know what? I know what you're going to do with that right now, and that's, that's really not what I have in store for you, so my answer is no, and that's where we get to know where our maturity is. I remember a, a pastor, I heard him, once heard him say, you can always tell someone's maturity when someone else or God tells them no. That's when you can really start seeing how mature you are, and I don't want anyone to think, again, God's not against you doing things that make you happy. I think if that was the case, he wouldn't have created so many emotions that that deal with happiness and and joy and the feelings of love and the feelings we get when we see someone else do something so incredible. We, We get this happy feeling. God is the creator of those emotions, and I believe he wants us to experience these emotions. He wants us to have things in our life that make us happy, but he is more interested, more than our happiness, he's more interested in the heart behind the happiness. More interested in the motive behind it. What are you doing? What is pouring out from your heart that's making you happy? I think that's really what he's going for. God's love is so great, and he wants you, I do believe, to experience joy and experience happiness with the heart behind it that is serving him and loving his people. Because that's a joy and happiness that can't be replicated by the world. It can only come from God. James continues in 4-4. Now, now, this, this passage in 4-4, this is where I think James really just hit me in the gut, for lack of better phrase. He says this. He talks about the love of serving God, the heart following God and the, versus the heart following the world. But the analogy he gives is so vivid and hard and deep and real. He addresses our relationship with the world and our relationship with God as a marriage. He addresses this in a major way. He says, when we are focused on the world, ourselves and our own self-gratification is like flirting with spiritual adultery. Flirting with spiritual adultery. That's right. I said the A word from the pulpit, adultery. In James 4.4, 4, James says this, you adulterous people. That's just a harsh thing to say to someone right there, right? You adulterous people. Don't you know that your friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Now, James is downright personal on this note. He addresses the pleasure-loving reader as you adulterous people. Referring to believers as being married to God, being with and of God, loving him and being devoted to him the way that you're devoted to and love your spouse, the way that you would do anything for your spouse. He says, this is the marriage, you have a relationship, a marriage relationship with God. This is a theme that gets traced all the way back to the Old Testament, where where God's people were taught to, to be thought of as God's wife and he, their husband, to the New Testament where the church is considered the bride of Christ. Isaiah 54 says, for your maker is your husband, the Lord Almighty is his name. Hosea 2 says, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice. Ephesians 5 says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Revelation 19 says, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. There's so much analogy of our relationship with God and us as as the bride and the church in this marriage. But when we're married and we step out on our spouse. We start flirting with somebody else. What's that called? It's adultery. It's cheating on your spouse. It's adultery. And James comes right out and says, you adulterous people, when you're, when you're choosing the world, you're cheating on God. That is a vivid, hard truth. Truth that we don't always want to look at it that way. And he says it because he knows this is a big deal. Our love affair with pleasure, our friendliness towards the world that grieves God, this is like hatred towards God. That's serious. Now, now, when, when you're married, one of the leading causes of divorce is adultery. Sexual sin, people stepping out on their wives, and not just even the physical act of, of having sex with another person, but, but pornography, lust. Adultery with the eyes and the thoughts that leads to divorce, and James is using that so vividly because he says, "I want you guys to understand how serious this is. When you're choosing the world, you're cheating on God. This is a big deal." And we see here what James is saying is God has no desire to share us with the world. Just like I don't think any spouse would say, "I want to share my spouse with the world." God's saying the same thing. I don't want. I don't want you to share me. I want to be yours. I want you to be here for me, all in with me. James 4 or 5, he says, or do you think scripture says without reason that the spirit caused caused to live in us envies intensely? I love this because it says it envies intensely. It shows just how badly God wants to be with you. So badly that he envies it when we go somewhere else. He wants us so bad. He doesn't want us cheating on him. He wants all of us, and he wants us to want all of him. This is a deep, passionate love that personally I find so reassuring to know that God doesn't want to share me. He wants all of me. And I know that when I give myself to him, when I give all of myself to him, he has so many great things for me. And I don't want ever my life to say, I'm cheating on my God. Now, when I, the love I have for my wife, I think, I think of that. I think, I, I don't ever want my wife to think I'm looking at another woman. I don't ever want my wife to think I'm doing anything with another, another woman. And I've, I think I've done an amazing job not giving her any reason to think those things because I, 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 I don't want to do those things. I don't want to go down that path. Now translate that to my relationship with God. What can I do? How can I make sure that my life is one where I can say, God, I'm all in and you don't even have to worry about it. I'm not going to flirt. I'm not even going to flirt with something else. It's a hard place to be because I know we give in to the sins of the flesh. But it's a serious deal knowing that we got to be all in on God. But knowing that we aren't perfect, James lays down this big how serious this is, but he also sums it up with this amazing talk on grace. Because knowing we're not perfect, he then talks about how, hey, we still mess up, but God gives us grace. God gives us so much grace. Verse 6 talks about the grace God pours into the humble. He says, but he gives us more grace. That is why the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And this is a quote from Proverbs uh, 3.34. But in just six verses, just six short verses, we see pride, grace, humility, hedonism, and how they all live in tension, competing against hedonism, right? It's a powerful word. Grace is such a big part of this whole thing, because if we don't have grace, we could look at it and say, oh man, I just cheated on God, he's gonna divorce me. But he's not gonna do that. He'll never kick you out. He won't push you aside because he gives us an amazing amount of grace. Paul talks about grace in all of his passages, in all of his books. He opens up some of his books with grace and peace to you. It's such a common theme of what he says. And James says this as well. He knows the grace of God is real. God's grace helps us in our struggle with sin and our struggle with this pleasure principle. God's spirit woos us to him and allows us to recognize our sin and allows us to come in repentance where God says, hey, I know you're sorry we get to do this again. And he pours out his grace. His mercies are new every single day. And that is so amazing. It seems today that that so many conversations take place without that deep repentance though. There can often be a sense of need and emptiness and and that can be answered by a trust in the Lord that fills us with joy and hope. And that's good. But it, but at some point we need to understand when we come to God, we, we we've got to make sure our hearts are open and we're Coming to him with humility and full of humbleness, saying, God, this is, this is who I am. This is where I've messed up, and I know I don't deserve this, but I know you give it freely. Coming to God with humility is a huge part of this equation. Often, that, that requires that the pain of, of self-discovery. Sometimes you go down this path, and you, know, you hear the phrase every now and then, people saying, I've got to go down a path and find myself. Man, that's, that's, sometimes that's not an easy path. That can be a really long, really hard walk where you have the ups and downs. You feel like you're on a roller coaster and sometimes you even do the loop-de-loop, right? But ultimately you get to this point where you say, I found myself. And when you find who God created you to be and you see that his grace has allowed you to be who he's created you to be, that's a great place. And often, often it doesn't happen at the beginning of a relationship with Jesus. It's something you go through all, this, all the time. Every day, every month, every year, you're going to be walking through this path of grace, recognizing where we've messed up, but ultimately coming back with humility to the God who gave his life for you because he loves you so much. And we get to rip back the layers and layers of selfishness, the layers and layers of hedonism that are maybe ruling aspects of our life and give that to God instead. Now, like I said, I've struggled with pride in my life before. So when I encounter that passage, God opposes the proud, I find myself distinctly desiring to not set myself up to oppose God. I don't know if anybody here has ever tried to fight God on something. It typically does not work out in your favor. I I would have a better chance personally of saying in my weakest moment, beating Mike Tyson in his strongest moment, than I ever would at any point beating God in a match. And um, you know, both of those are like zero percent, right? I would never beat Tyson in his prime, even at my weakest or my strongest. I would never beat God, but I would have a better chance at beating Tyson than I would God. We've got to come to that point, right? I've I've got to make sure that I know that that I'm not letting my pride lead that decision or that conversation with God. I have to understand that pride ultimately will be a blocker to that grace. The more pride I live out, the more I live me-centered, the more I'm setting myself up to be in the opposition of the very nature of God, the very nature of humility and love that he pours out to us each and every day. We need that grace and humility. I need an abundance of his grace. But in order to receive it, I know that I need to focus way more on what he wants more than what I want. And then I love how James wraps this up, this last chunk of verses. He talks all about the heart. And we saw this in chapter one. We saw it in chapter two. We saw it in chapter three. He pulls the heart through and everything he talks about. And I love that about the book of James. He, all these truth bomb, truth bomb, truth bomb. And what is happening? What is it doing in your heart? The heart of the matter is, it is all about your heart. In chapter one, we did religion versus relationship, and we said Jesus wants your heart more than he wants you to follow a religion. He wants a relationship. He wants your heart to be all in. In chapter two, we talked about uh, faith and works and how we have head knowledge and we transfer it into our hearts, and then that pours out through our works. Our hearts pour out through our actions. Last week, we talked about the tongue and how out of the heart, the tongue will speak. So James brings everything back into the tongue. This week, pride, humility, what we're living for, all boils down to what is your heart seeking? What is your heart pursuing? Is it pursuing your desires? Is it pursuing the world's desires? Is it pursuing God's desires? And I think there's six things here that James says on ways we can work on our heart and how we can have God work on our hearts. The first is having a heart of submission. I think verses seven through 10 give us a, a clear instruction on repentance. And, and who knows, this may, this may arise straight out of the first century Jerusalem church revival meetings, right? He says this, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he'll come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. James takes a lot of quotes from Proverbs chapter three and uses them in exhortation to God. And here's the general principle. He says to submit yourself. When he says turn your joy into wailing, he's saying these things, he's not saying you can never be happy. He's saying take these moments where you're living for yourself and shift it to a point where you're focused on God instead. Have this heart of submission. If you've been proud, you need to voluntarily, not under duress, not like, oh, I better do this because I have to. Someone said, oh, Pastor Dustin said this, so I guess I better do this now. Not under duress or being forced. God is saying, I want you to do this freely. Freely. Of your will, submit your heart to me, and then watch what I can do. He's not going to force you to give up your heart. He wants you to give up your heart. When we read through the story of Pharaoh in in Exodus, we see a, a point where it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But you know what it says five times before God hardened Pharaoh's heart? It says Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then eventually it got to the point where God said, all right, if that's what you want, you've got it. I think God does the same thing with us. If we come to God with a prideful heart, eventually they'll be like, "All right, you're opposing me. Fine, have your hard heart." When we come with a soft heart, that's when God says, "Now we can work. Now we can do something great." Have a heart of submission. Second is a heart of resistance. The word "resist" is the, the Greek word. I'm gonna I'm gonna botch this word, and fist to me, but it means set against set oneself against, oppose, resist, and withstand. One problem that, that we have all too often is that we can be really double-minded. We cling to selfish desires and the desires to please God. And, but we clearly have to take a stand, as we said earlier, a stand against the worldly desires and resist the world, have a heart that resists those things and goes to God instead. And what is the relation between the devil and temptation? Right? Sometimes we can't resist it. We say, we can't resist it. The devil tempted me too much. I mean, does the devil make us do things? I mean, the, the, the devil certainly tempted Jesus in, in Matthew chapter 4. You know, he, he dangled a lot of things in front of Jesus. That, you know, The word tempted means there was a part of Jesus that may have even thought, hey, that looks nice, because it was tempting. He said, hey, you're hungry. Here's some food. Hey, here's recognition. Hey, here's power. Here's ownership. I'll give these things to you. But Jesus' way was different. Jesus' plan was one that was definitely more painful, definitely harder, but ultimately the righteous, amazing plan for all of us. Satan will take a lot of legitimate desires, a lot of things that we'll look at and say, this is good, this is good, I want this. For Jesus, Jesus, take some food. Food is good. I like food. But he took it and he was using it in a way that was not the right way. Satan will do that today. He'll take something that we know is so good and he'll say, give this, you know your heart wants this. He'll take something we know is good. The desire for sex, for example a good desire. God gave the desire for men and women to want each other but then Satan will take it and take pornography take sex outside of marriage he'll take something where there's a good desire and say but fulfill it this way and it's wrong he does that in so many ways he'll take the desire maybe to provide for your family he'll say hey you know what no one will notice if that's missing. That that chunk of money right there that so easily you can add to your bank account no one will ever know it's gone good desire you, you want to use that to, to pay some bills to, not even not even to go on some lavish vacation you just you need that to do something and you're like i can take it and that's where the temptation comes in right it's a good thing that you know you, you want it for the good reason but satan's going to make it a bad way to get it good desire bad method we've got to have a heart that resists the bad method Resisting the devil means we stop flirting with temptations. To be able to say no to him and yes to God. To know that God's way is always better. Even if it's harder, even if it doesn't always make sense, it's always the better way. And I love that it says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. What a, what a great power we have over the devil because we have Jesus. What a great gift we have to be able to say no and he has to flee because of who we have. When we resist the world, when we resist him, and we use Jesus' name as our resistance, the devil has to flee. Let that empower you when you think about that. The third is a heart of repentance. James says in verse 8, he says, wash your hands, purify your hearts. And what does this mean? Because because God's the one that cleanses us, right? So James is well aware of the necessity for God's grace. What he's talking about this exhortation is, it's our job to receive this. Um, chapter Isaiah chapter 1, it says, wash your hands, you sinners. This is a callback. I, Isaiah 1, wash your hands, you sinners. Isaiah says it more. He says, your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. do Learn to do what's right. What washing your hands in this context is another way of saying, very blatantly looking at someone going, hey, stop it doesn't always work all the time, but sometimes you just feel like when someone, like even when my kids are like, Dad, this happened, this, I wanted this. I we'll say, hey, stop. And they look at me and I go, and the problem's over. Because we just stopped. Washing your hands is being able to say, hey, stop it. I'm going to stop it and walk away from this. We see this in the book of Revelation. John sees a multitude of heavenly hosts wearing white robes and praising God. And one of the elders who tells this group says this in Revelation 7 These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes, made them white in the blood of the lamb. No, they didn't save themselves, but they stopped doing what the world says and they let the blood of the lamb wash them and make them clean. They turned away from their sin and they were cleansed by the blood of Jesus. James says, purify your hearts, you double-minded. And this is the second part of the directive. Stop doing what's wrong. This is the wash your hands part of it. And then we turn our wills decisively to God's will. And this is the purify your hearts part of it. Stop doing what's wrong, turn to God. Let his blood wash you, and then pursue him first. Have that heart of repentance. Fourth is a heart of humility. James sets it up, right? We talked about this. He said, Humble yourselves. The humble, it literally means make yourself lower. Figuratively, make humble. And in good sense, right? James has been talking in this chapter about the roots of pride and the independent struggle we have with with hedonism and wanting to live for ourselves. He says, make yourselves humble. Acknowledge God. You've got to become less so he can become greater. When we come at it with this humble mentality, that's when we see God work and we get to know that as his humble servants, we get to do amazing things because he lifts us up instead of us lifting ourselves up. And that's what it says in the second half of that verse. He will lift you up. Such dependence shows that you're not relying on your own strength to do it. You're denying your strength and acknowledging God's strength in its place. He's the one who lifts. He's the one who gets exalted. It's his strength that we are able to defeat the world. Fifth is a heart of unity. These next several verses give examples of this presumption, these behavioral habits that are causing anything but humbleness, anything but humility, and it's causing division amongst the, the body of Christ. He says, don't slander one another. He goes off, he says, anyone who who speaks against the law and judges it, you are not the judge. You are not keeping it, sitting on the throne. He's the lawgiver, he is the judge. Who are you to judge your neighbor? I'm sure none of us have ever judged our neighbors for anything ever. No one has ever said anything that made us think less of anyone, right? We're on the same page, right? Yeah, we deal with that all the time. How many times has someone on Facebook said something and you immediately thought a negative thought and you judged them for it? How many times has a political figure said something and you judged them for it? Right? We do this. We start thinking of people in bad ways. We judge people all the time. James says, brothers, do not slander one another. And he brings this up because the church in that time was slandering one another. They wouldn't call it slander. Maybe they'd call it creative criticism. Right? I'm I'm not going to, there's someone that says, you know, I don't know if you need to hear this, but I'm going to say it anyway. And they throw something out there, you know, they creatively criticize you right? James is saying, don't slander one another. Sometimes you can tell the truth, but you can tell the truth in a good way. You can give, you can build someone up in a way where where you're helping course correct if you see something, but you're not judging someone. Maybe you're understanding where they came from. I got to be a part of and watch something called the Global Leadership Summit um, last week, and one of the speakers talked about how something that was lost in the world during COVID was the, the ability for people to empathize with one another. A lot of what COVID did was put people into self-preservation modes. A a, a lot of, you know, hey, well, I've got to look out for my family. I've got to look out for this, and I can't do this. How dare you say that? How dare you do this? And we lost the ability to see things from other people's shoes, to put ourselves in other people's perspective and say, this is why they're doing what they're doing because this is how they see what's going on. And we start judging people instead. And when we have a heart that doesn't judge, when, when we have that heart of unity and we're able to understand each other, that's when we get to really build each other up as this body of Christ. And we get to see ourselves do amazing things. When we see someone and we say, hey, I may not like them, but that is a child of God. And we talk to them like they are a child of God. Because we are children of God. And we want them to talk to us like we're children of God. That shifts everything in the way you talk to people and the way you see people if the person you don't know or you don't have the nicest thoughts about are following jesus well guess what you may not have nice thoughts about them, but they're still a child of god they're still following jesus and we still need to speak life into those people we need to build each other up and not tear each other down don't do things that'll push people away but do things that'll bring people in show love show acceptance show forgiveness and ultimately show how a life with christ is a life like no other specifically in a church. So many times the the church can be the reason people don't come to church. That's kind of the antithesis of what we're doing, right? We want people to come, but we want to be able to be those people that speak so much life into people that they want to be a part of what we're doing because we know that God is too big a deal for them to miss out on. Love God, love people, love the church, reach our community. And lastly, we need to have a heart of love. Have that heart of love. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. And then 1 John says this, God is love. How great is that? Everything you you read in Corinthians about what love is, then you get to say God is love. Who doesn't want to share that with people? Who doesn't want to say "I, I have I have this God who will protect, who will who trusts, who hopes, who perseveres. Love never fails. It does not delight in evil. Rejoices in truth. That's the God we serve. Doesn't keep record of your rights and wrongs. Doesn't self seek. Not easily angered. Does not delight in evil. We get to share that with God. If our hearts are pouring out love, people are drawn to that because we live in a world where people need to feel loved. And I love that God's love never fails. James says, don't speak against your brothers or judge them, show them love. When we speak against someone, we may be setting ourselves up as a judge instead of pointing them to the person who loves them and the only person worthy of judging them. Don't go out spreading slander, it says in Leviticus. Love your neighbor as yourself. James says above all we've got to let the love of Jesus flow and and I love that have you ever can you remember that that feeling you had the first time you fell in love the first time you you looked at someone and and you knew you were falling in love and and maybe you, you asked someone on a date and they said yes and you shared your first kiss that those feelings of love right imagine that feeling pouring out into people having a relationship with Jesus living in that moment where they get to come and they get to say, hey, I'm following Jesus and this is how I feel because God is love. That's an amazing thing and that's what we have the privilege of sharing with people, amen? Would you all stand with me? Guys, let, let love pour out of your hearts. Don't let anything that was said today discourage you. Let it be an encouragement on what God can work in our hearts. And ultimately, let love be the factor that turns us away from ourselves and turns us towards God. Amen? God, I thank you for who you are. I thank you that you love us so greatly, God that, God, that your love never fails. Your mercies are new. God, I pray that our hearts turn towards you. We don't live for ourselves, but we consistently seek you in everything we do. And God, when we do that, we see your amazing grace pour out of us and into those around us. So God, fuel our hearts, fuel our motivations, and you be the reason for what we do. We thank you, we love you, and everybody said, amen.